Full Court Fits is The Ringer's new weekly NBA video series hosted by Big Waz, aka Wozni Lambre. Each week, we take you around the world of NBA fashion and share can't-miss style choices from your favorite players and keep you up to date on the latest news and releases in sneaker culture. Waz also talks to experts like Damian Lillard's personal stylists to give you behind-the-scenes looks at how the NBA's biggest stars choose their outfits. New episodes drop every Friday, so make sure you're subscribed to The Ringer's YouTube channel at youtube.com slash The Ringer so you never miss an episode. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. This is Larry Wilmore. You are listening to Black on the Air. Thank you for supporting this podcast and tuning in. This week, I have Ibram X. Kendi, author of How to Be an Anti-Racist. He has a new podcast out called Be an Anti-Racist. <laughs> so, and uh, I've wanted to have him on for a while to talk about this issue. So uh, I got to talk to him uh, yesterday. We had a really great conversation about this stuff. And uh, the whole anti-racism, racism, and all that stuff. A lot of, it's real interesting. You know, he comes at it from... Um, almost philosophical point of view, a lot of these things. And um, we ended up having a really, I think, good and thorough conversation on this. I think you guys will like it a lot. And uh, hopefully uh, it'll pique, you know, some some uh, thought about this. I would love to hear your thoughts. There's a lot to be said about this, by the way. And, you know, I covered one particular aspect in the talk with him, but there's so many things. We didn't talk a lot about critical race theory. We focused more on, um, and you'll hear it in a minute, and the whole anti-racism and that kind of stuff and and the way that he shapes it. But uh, in my head just explodes over all this talk about critical race theory, uh, (laughs) Republicans. I love how they run with anything that has to do with race. (laughs) They just think it's this bomb that this fuse is lit and they're holding the bomb and it's coming for them. That fire is just getting closer and closer. Critical race theory. No, it's killing us. And look, you know how I am. I like to look at both sides of things all the time. You know, they're always definitely, whenever the left has something in their hands that has any virtue in it, they always take it a little too far. Always, 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 always. It's like you have the moral high ground on your side. Don't take it too far, but they always do. But whatever, it's what happens. And by take it too far, I think there are many aspects of, of, I'll call it the fight against racism is what I'll call it, Um, that I think is a bit misguided, but that's all. Um, like the whole critical race theory and some of the things that are going on. First of all, I think a lot of the terms are just not correct. And as a writer and somebody who loves words, like for me, I could care less about critical race theory. Honestly, I could care less about it. I don't have an opinion about it for or against. I don't even know that much about it. I know it's started in the, in the legal field and that type of thing. I think people are probably misusing it. I like to deal with critical race facts. All right. You can have critical race theory. I like to deal with critical race facts. Slavery, critical race fact. Jim Crow, critical race fact. Segregation, critical race fact. 
redlining, critical race fact. Friends, critical race fact. <laughs> no, TV show Friends. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> but there are many things that happened in this country that are not theories, that are just facts. And the horrible way Black people were treated in this country, slavery, Jim Crow, at all, are critical race facts. They are not theories. The part that gets a lot of people, especially white people, upset is that it hurts their feelings to hear a lot of these things. You know why? And it should hurt your feelings because a lot of this shit is painful. It's terrible. The, the treatment that Black people had in this country is horrible. It's, it's psychically horrible. It's uh, emotionally horrible. Generationally, it has effects. So many different things. It's not just a one-off bad apple type of thing that people always try to categorize it is that it was a, when they talk about systemic, it was a system-wide method, a system-wide relationship that Black people had in this country. And it really manifested itself in the desegregation of schools that happened in the 50s and the 60s. And the way, and the ugly way in which people acted, in which white people acted against just little kids that wanted to go to school is a complete manifestation of the way in which Black people were treated in general in the country at any given time, any given snapshot during that period. And that's why the teaching of that is important, warts and all. And I think what happens with the critical race theory and some of that, it gets conflated with the actual teaching of the history, warts and all, not you know, glossing it over to save somebody's feelings. This is one place where you should not be concerned about saving people's feelings. I'll give you an example. So there's one, uh, parents are losing their minds right now in some of these school boards. And you guys have seen some of these fights. Some of it, like I said, there has been overreach in the methods of teaching of some of this stuff. Uh, I won't go into that now because I don't have the examples in front of me, but they're out there and you can find them. But I'll go, I'll stay on the other side of this. Some of it has been knee-jerk responses to what they think is the indoctrination of children, which they don't realize that most people in America have already been indoctrinated improperly. <laughs> That's what they don't realize. That is being washed away with a lot of this teaching, in my mind. And the biggest example of this was there was a fight over what books should be taught to kids in elementary school, you know. How you start off kids, you know, of course, is very important with how they learn about this country and what this country represents and what it's done and all these things. How you learn as a young child about these things really helps to shape your view of that later on, as opposed to learning about it later, you know, which is good, too. One of the books that was on this list that parents objected to was, I think it was called The Ruby Bridges Story. And Ruby Bridges was, you know, the young girl and I believe it was New Orleans who, this is elementary school. She was one of the kids that was desegregating schools. And, you know, she wrote a book about her story. She became a civil rights activist, of course. But the the way that the white people, and we're talking about not just adults, but children, you know, who've been taught to act this way, because they didn't come out of the womb like that. They were taught to act this way, are saying the most horrible things about a six-year-old, you guys, about a fucking six-year-old, Go home, nigger. You, we don't want niggers in here. This is a communist pot and all those things. Those are critical race facts. Okay. Those things happen. 
And it is important, I believe, for children to know, yes, white people acted this way towards black people. This is not a generalization. This happened over and over in many different places. When we were at this juncture, when black people were not allowed, you know, we weren't taken anymore of being shut out of society in general, not to necessarily be in white spaces, which is a different argument, but to not be, have to be in, uh, in this other space all the time, you know, not be allowed in, in all the spaces that everyone else could be in. Um, and, uh, kids have to know this shit, man. They need to know, you know, you need to know the dark as well as the light. If you're going to say that America is this great place and it provides this opportunity for people and, uh, you know, save the world from Hitler and fascism and all these things, uh, you can go from zero to hero, whatever you want to say. If you want to say all these good things about America, you are creating a disservice to people if you are not showing the warts. I've always believed in this. You have to show the good and the bad. And a lot of what I call a critical race facts is just showing what actually fucking happened. You're not even putting a, an opinion on that. And the Ruby Bridges for Christ's one of the objections people said, well, there's no redemption at the end of it. There's no redemption for the white people that were saying this. Yes, correct. But there's, they're not the protagonists in this. Ruby is the protagonist. They're the antagonists. There's redemption for her and her life, but we don't require redemption for these other people. And it's a true story. What the fuck do you mean? There's, there's no redemption. Own up to your shit, motherfuckers. Jesus Christ. What is so hard in owning up to this stuff? I just don't get it. But anyhow, it's very interesting to see that, you know. Um, and I'm observing, like I said, both sides of these and keeping my eye on it. And <laughs> maybe I'll talk about more of the other side of it, too. Let me say this uh, as a side point. I think what happens when I talk about overreach here, let me try to clear up what I mean by it. And hopefully this will clear it up. I think what I have a problem with sometimes is the way in which I'll say the left, the left can, it's a valiant fight, the fight that they're fighting, but sometimes the methods just to me are confusing or they're just misguided or they're not, you know, it's just an overreach is what I like to call it. You know, the whole defund the police thing was an example. Remember, a lot of people didn't like me saying I didn't think that was a good slogan. I, You know, it's very confusing to me. I disagree with it also, you know. But now the left, a lot of these motherfuckers are acting like they never said it. I mean, it's crazy, especially Democrats. You know, they're running away from it. This I really don't understand. It's like, wait, you spent all last summer saying that we have to defund the police. This is the only way to save our our neighborhoods and all this stuff. And now you hear a lot of Democrats and even people like Joy Reid who are saying, well, the Republicans are the ones who are actually defunding the police. What the fuck does that mean? The Republicans are the ones that are actually defunding the police. So defunding is a bad thing now? Like people say it like, well, they're the ones actually doing it. So you disagree with it? I'm confused. If this is such a good idea, why are you running away from it? You can't run away from it because crime spikes. Well, that's probably going to be one of the things that's going to happen. But if, if the idea is solid, stick with it. I'm not mad at you. If you really believe, look, guys, I say this over and over. Just because I disagree with you doesn't mean I can't 
you know, hope that you might win or something like that, or, or I don't give you the respect of, you know, you believe in your position. If you believe in defund the police, stick with it. But if you're saying it's a shitty idea now and try to blame it on Republicans, that kind of, no, 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 no. That does not fly with me. No, 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 no. You cannot run away from it and act like it was never an idea. The part about defund the police, which I do believe is good, is the fund the community part. You know, I always felt that the fun part was punitive. You know, it was meant to send to send a message that police should be punished, which, you know, police should be punished for the bad things that they do. But police in the macro, you know, defund the police in a general sense is such a general idea, which is one of the reasons I just thought it was too broad, you know, but fund the community, I think is a general idea that I don't believe is too broad, you know, that the community Black community, poor communities should be supported more with funds for a lot of different programs and that kind of stuff, which I do think are helpful, but not at the expense of a disappearing police. That was my only point, that some of that can be true without necessarily doing all of it. But I've made that argument before. You guys have heard that from me. And I know many of you disagree, and that's fine. I'm not mad at you. But I also think, even in this fight on racism, I think there's a wanting to conflate the idea of dismantling white supremacy with ending racism. By the way, both of those, good luck. (laughs) Good luck. I admire the attempt, but good luck. Now, I will say this. I think it is more productive to find the areas where racism exists and to stop racism from existing in those areas, if that makes sense. Hey, look at this thing. That's racist. That needs to stop being racist. That to me feels like a more, an easier way to go about getting rid of racism. And I believe by getting rid of racism, the bonus of that hopefully will be the dismantling of white supremacy. That may or may not be true, but I think it could be. However, dismantling white supremacy is a tougher thing because so much of that is um, philosophical. You know, it's a bit ephemeral. It deals more kind of with opinion or people's feelings about things. It isn't always, it doesn't always manifest itself in policy or, things that can be addressed through government action or that type of thing. So it's a little tougher to address. And and going back to when I talked about overreach, the overreach to me is in the dismantling of the white supremacy part of it, where you're trying to do things to change people's minds about something. That's where I feel there's overreach. I don't care about changing someone's mind as much as I care about changing someone's actions. That's where I draw a distinction. And that's why I feel that when you go after racist policy or things that are practicing racism or whatever it is, you are trying to eliminate actions that are racist. When you're trying to dismantle white supremacy, sometimes that happens, but sometimes you're involved with more social engineering, which gets a little sticky when you live in a free society. You know, 
you're dealing with individual liberties and the right to, you know, have your own mind and think what you want to think, as long as your actions aren't breaking the law or infringing on someone else's rights, right? That's the kind of society we live in. The ACLU famously fought for the right for Nazis to march in the early 70s. We don't like that. We disagree with it. But that's the country we live in. You know, they had the right to hold those beliefs, even though they were abhorrent. So that gets a little sticky when you get into social engineering, trying to control who people are. You know, a lot of times these days, people are upset over who they think someone is. I'm mad because I feel you are a racist, as opposed to I'm mad because you did something racist, (laughs) you know, (laughs) two different things, you guys. So I like to create distinctions. That's a distinction that I'm going to create for this, you know. So anyhow, got a good conversation coming up with Mr. Ibram X. Kendi. And, you know, we'll continue on this kind of discussion and his thoughts about uh, being an anti-racist in his podcast right after this. This episode is brought to you by Hyundai. What does your next drive look like? Running between meetings? Maybe a getaway with the whole family? Either way, the 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe is the capable SUV that's built for your life with premium interiors, available wireless charging, and room for your whole cargo and crew. Okay, Hyundai. Visit HyundaiUSA.com to learn more about the all-new 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. All right, welcome back, everybody. In our continued quest to have very interesting guests on Black on the Air, I'm very honored to have this gentleman. Man, what a what a breaker of uh, of thought and just conversation over really the last six or seven years. First with this book, Stamped, then with this book, uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. It's just really exploded the conversations that we're having in America, finally having those conversations, I think, in a real and meaningful way. And now he has a podcast, Be Anti-Racist. He's challenging everybody to be (laughs) (laughs) anti-racist on his podcast, just breaking everything down. Ibram X. Kende, welcome to Black on the Air, my friend. It's an honor to be on, Larry. Thank you for having me. It's so great to have you on. uh, And congratulations on your podcast. It's nice to hear you uh, kind of at the front of the conversation you know, as opposed to people who are talking about either you or your work or some of the issues, you know, I like your approach. It's very, it's very like, uh, it's very thoughtful and, you know, you're very gracious with your speakers and everything. It's really good. Congrats. How are you feeling about your podcast so far? I'm feeling good. I mean, it's obviously it's a, it's a different medium. I feel like I'm having to sort of learn it. It's a little more performative than just being on the page. Exactly. And, you know, but I also enjoy having conversations with interesting sort of brilliant people. And so I get to do that. Some of your uh, mission statements, I guess, uh, when you open it, and I just wanted to ask you about it. You're asking us to adjust to an equitable world, you say, and make the impossible possible. Why are you aiming so low? (laughs) (laughs) I I don't know. I guess, you know, I come from a tradition of folks who just who can just imagine the impossible and you know I, I think you know why not why can't we imagine the impossible we imagine there was a time which we imagined we can end slavery which was literally impossible to to, to think about so so why can't we imagine that one day we can end racism 
And is that what your make the impossible possible is ending racism? Yes. Do you think that is possible? I think we can end the structures of racism. Mm -hmm. In other words, I, I think we could eliminate this widespread racial inequity and injustice. Mm -hmm. Can we eliminate any human being thinking a racist idea? I, I, I'm not sure about that, but I think, but we can put in place systems and structures that ensure that people who's like, they can't act necessarily on those ideas um, or people are protected from them or people are protected from particular practices. You know, I think we can create that type of world. Yeah, because human beings are, there's the light and the dark, the areas you're going to go to, good and evil, whatever. You know, everybody has the ability to go there. But if there's a structure that prevents organizations or structures from acting improperly against a group of people is what you first wished hope to have, correct? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and what is your goal on your podcast right now? Is it to just uh, educate people on some of these or just have these conversations? Or what, what are you trying to do? Well, we're calling it an action podcast. And, and I think because we really are trying to encourage people to take action on different forms of racism, really. And so every guest that comes onto the show is, is an expert on a different form of racism, whether that's okay. voter suppression, whether that's the intersection of racism and ableism, whether that is, uh, you know, uh, prisons and policing, whether that's uh, labor uh, and racism. And so we're, I also think it's important for people to know that there are scholars and, and journalists and activists uh, and, and elected officials who are experts on a specific form of racism, that racism is a big topic <laughs> and there are many different sort of forms, whether that's anti-Black or anti-Native, whether that's housing or racism in education or in criminal justice system. And there are people who are experts in different areas. And, and I wanted to learn from those people and, and provide a platform for others to learn from them, too. Yeah, one of the things that I think is valuable, and you you kind of explore this in different ways in your book, too, maybe not as, as direct as I'm going to say it, but I think one of the roadblocks, I believe, in trying to deal with racism, it is, always gets lumped into a category of, there is in the bigotry prejudice category, which, you know, keeps it in the micro, where I hate you and therefore I'm going to commit bad acts against you. Certainly racism has existed in that, but as you're saying, it's much bigger and broader than that. It doesn't necessarily require that type of um, inciting incident, I guess you could say, right? I think part of it is for me to the center of the conversation should shift to me from interpersonal interactions to why is white American median wealth 10 times black American median wealth? And then that allows us to start thinking about, okay, what are the past and present policies and practices that could have led to that? It also causes individuals to, to think about, well, do I think that disparity exists because I think there's something wrong with black people, that they're not saving, that they're financially illiterate? Is that allowing me to see that disparity as normal? Uh, and, and if it is, then that's a problem because then that prevents me from then having that larger discussion about the structures 
that have led to that. And then once we can then identify those policies and practices, we can begin to eliminate them. Do you ever find that I'll say white people's minds are ever opened or changed when they really learn the true history of the black relationship with the United States government uh, through Jim Crow laws and redlining and all that type of stuff. Have people, do you think people have actually thought about this differently when they hear about this? I think some people do, uh-huh. but some people don't because it really depends on the context. So to give an example, let's say if a person learns about redlining and they're like, whoa, I could see how that was harmful to black people in 1940. Right, right. Or 1950, right. <laughs> but yeah. that has no relationship to why, for instance, white uh, home ownership rates are 30 points higher than, than black ownership rates today. And, and so we have to then make the connection and they may be open to it, to more contemporary forms of redlining, which then allows them to understand how the disparities persist. Yeah. And a lot of people, I'll go, I'll disagree with the other point that I made in a little bit. <laughs> I do that sometimes. I disagree with myself all the time, by the way. I do too. <laughs> but it, but it's how I find areas that I didn't know I was going to get to many times. It's a good exercise, you know, but not really quite disagree with. But also, I also never want to underestimate or soft sell to people how important hatred was in these decisions, in the decision-making. For instance, Plessy versus Ferguson is a hate law. It's saying, we don't want to be around Black people. We want to be separated because we don't like you, you're inferior, whatever. You're going to poison our swimming pools, all these things. It's based on hatred itself. you know. And people need to understand that it's not just a law that's just, oh, it's just a law. Yeah, we're just separated. You know, There's something that is was animating those types of laws, especially during that whole period. Yeah, and I think in addition to that, and, and this is what I really tried to show in, in Stanford from the beginning, that that people are taught to hate, right? So people, right. you know, working class, let's say white people and middle class, white Southerners in the late 1800s and early 1900s were taught this idea that the Reconstruction era was this corrupt, horrific period for white Southerners because you had these corrupt in their mind, uh, Black politicians and voters who essentially devastated the South. So they're taught this, and, 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 and they're taught this by white elected officials whose power is directly based on the disenfranchising of Black people to then justify why those Black people are being disenfranchised, which then allows them to say to, to their white constituents that I am a defender of you because when those Black folks were in office, they were harming you. When indeed, when those Black folks were in office, they were actually helping the vast majority of white Southerners. And, and so then it allows, you know, that powerful sort of, the, the, the powerful white political elite to justify their, their existence. Yeah. And this goes, what I feel what you're talking about now too, goes to what the heart of what white superiority actually is. Once again, White superiority doesn't necessarily mean you're a Klansman and you're doing all these things. It really is the way your worldview is formed, right? And it's the reason why people don't understand, like, whites could get along with blacks as long as they were in their place. And the in-their-place-ism is one of the biggest isms that, you know, (laughs) I think we haven't really addressed. And when blacks started breaking out of in-their-place-isms, you know, 
is when a lot of conflicts were really happening, especially around the 20s and the 40s and that sort of thing. You know, and that's why also, to me, it's the breaking apart of the difference between someone feeling that they're not racist, but they're actually holding on to white superior ideas. Does that make sense? Yeah, without question. And and indeed, I mean, I, I think we haven't documented enough. And I, I, that's why I'm happy the recent national conversation around the, the Tulsa sort of massacre yes. is, mm-hmm. is, I think, an important conversation because I think what people realize is that community, that business district was devastated because of its excellence. Right. <laughs> so people learn like, whoa, they- like. It, it wasn't just because they were Black. No, no, no. It was because they Correct. were Black and excellent. They didn't stay uh, in their place. Exactly. And didn't <laughs> stay in their place. And 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 as a result, uh, people who imagined Black people as inferior, it couldn't, they couldn't rationalize, you know, the existence of, of Black Wall Street. They couldn't rationalize a self-sufficient Black community that... Uh, and so what then happened is they devastated this black business district, drove black people into poverty, uh, created a situation in which those black residents needed to now, of course, uh, depend on white businesses. And then mm-hmm. suddenly they felt then they justify, well, they're poor because they're black. <laughs> yes. And also integration, unfortunately, was a myth for Blacks in America for a really long time, you know, and it should not be confused with Black excellence and success in spite of not being able to be integrated. And those are also, I feel, conflated. Well, Blacks are too. Look at Madam C.J. Walker. She's a millionaire. (laughs) (laughs) Because the, the idea goes, well, if one Black person can do it, then everyone else should be able to do it. And if they can't, it's because there's something wrong with Black people. And I, I remember my, I had a college professor who talked about this and was like, yeah, you know, there are people who fall out of airplanes and live. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't mean, <laughs> you know, that doesn't mean we should say, oh, well, it proves the rule because one person. Right. <laughs> one of the things I want to talk to you about is um, this term anti-racist, because even though the the concept, I guess the the underpinnings of it, I think, have been a, around for a while. This term has not been used as much as it's being used now, you know, uh, in the way where it's being discussed. Uh, can you just define for us what is anti-racist? How is that different from racism? And how is that different from non-racist? I think let's, I'd like to just break down its component parts. So sure. you, you have a an idea, a racist idea, which suggests racial hierarchy, that a racial group is superior or inferior to another, as we just talked about. The opposite of racial hierarchy is racial equality. So, you know, any idea that suggests the racial groups are equals is an anti-racist idea or challenges ideas of racial hierarchy. You have a policy that leads to racial inequity or injustice. That's a racist policy. The opposite of inequity and injustice is equity and justice. So if a policy is leading to equity and justice, it is anti-racist. And then as an individual, you have an individual who is expressing a racist idea or supporting a racist policy and thereby being racist. And you have an individual who is expressing an anti-racist idea or supporting an anti-racist 
policy, which means that they're by being uh, anti-racist. And I, I define it or I describe it in that way because for too long, we've understood racist like not racist as these fixed categories, as almost these identities. Like this is who I fundamentally am. This is in my heart. This is in my bones. And, and what I'm arguing is that racist and anti-racist are descriptive terms. They describe what a person is being in any given moment based on what they're saying or doing. And the reason why I came to this definition is, is based on my research that you have so many people who hold both racist and anti-racist ideas, depending on the racial group, depending on the subject, and depending on the situation. So what that means is if you have a person who believes, let's say, that Black people are dangerous, but then on the other hand, they, they believe that, uh, that Latinx immigrants are not animals and, 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 and rapists, then how can you call that person essentially racist or anti-racist? <laughs> but what you can say is when they're pushing back against those uh, derogatory ideas about Latinx immigrants, they're being anti-racist. But then when they're uh, imagining that Black people are dangerous, they're being racist. Yeah, what I, what I really like about this approach, and even though I can find disagreements with you know anything and I'm naturally contrary in that type of thing. But what you're hitting on to me, the part of it that is is different from a lot of the movement that has been out there, that I think it's focused too much on identity, you know, yes. and trying to define what a person is, like, as you say, in their heart, and that that is an immovable object that is not even to be discussed with or whatever. And I like that you put it into actions because... Because what happens is what we should be concerned with, exactly. you know, not how a person feels. I could care less how somebody feels, you know, <laughs> I, Harry Truman probably dropped the M-bomb, you know, a thousand times more than than Lyndon Johnson did, who dropped it many times, too. But he integrated the armed services. Lyndon Johnson passed the voting rights act, so on and so forth, you know. And there are other things where you could say, well, they might have been racist acts. But if you look at the act itself, you could say that was anti-racist or whatever it is. And I do you think there should be more of a focus on these actions? And you also put outcomes along with actions that I, you feel outcomes are equally important as as the structure itself. Is that right? Well, I, I think we should be focused on actions and outcomes uh -huh. as opposed to a supposed intent and identity. Uh, and 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 to me First and foremost, the reason why we should be focused on uh, actions as it relates to a human being is because it is human beings are deeply complex and contradictory. And so to, to essentially fix a person, make a case that a person is inherently anything, just doesn't really make sense in terms of the way humans operate. <laughs> right. So you can, you know, you can take, to give an example, a person, and this is probably a, a, a rogue example, you take a person who is just literally mean every day <laughs> to everyone they encounter. Yeah. Right. But then they encounter, you know, a three-year-old really adorable uh -huh. girl and then nice to that girl. Uh -huh. Right. We can't deny that they were nice to that girl, even though they were mean all those other times. 
Right. And and if you're trying to tell me there are no assholes out there, even this is going to be our first big disagreement. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I mean, we can I, I guess what I'm saying in a technical sense. Yeah. Even an asshole potentially says or does something at, at a given time. That's mm-hmm. nice. And 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 we can't deny that sort mm-hmm. of reality. Uh, and, and And the reason why. But. You know, I guess what I'm speaking about is even when I'm thinking, you know, when I'm talking to my daughter, I'm I'm trying to get her to recognize that there are people who do bad things as opposed to bad people. Because what happens is once you frame a person as good or bad, let's say she frames somebody as good, is she going to look for the potential bad things that person can do? Um, And and so we're going to imagine that people are inherently good or bad when that those bad or good people could be doing both. Now they're likely doing more good or more bad. But ultimately what I'm saying is that at least as it relates to race and racism, that because we have fixed people as racist or even, quote, not racist or anti-racist, we haven't, for instance, been able to see how there are abolitionists, for instance, who believe that Black people were subhuman brutes who claimed that slavery was so horrific it made Black people into subhuman brutes. So therefore, when, when Civil War came and we started talking about giving civil and voting rights to, to Black people, some abolitionists were against that because they were like, well, we need, they need to be civilized first. Or taking the case of, you know, the civil rights movement, there were some civil rights activists who thought that white institutions and white communities was superior to black institutions and black communities. And that was driving their push for desegregation and integration versus others who were like, there's a resource inequity that that needs to be solved. And, And so it doesn't allow us to really complicate and allow for the nuance that has existed. Yeah. And some of that there's, there are truths in some of those, you know, but that doesn't make it a blanket truth. You know, because in many of those white institutions, they have better resources. You know, a place like Harvard is going to attract, you know, certain type of of people, you know, that are thinking in a certain way. And if you're not allowed in those walls, yes, that is not a good thing. You know, not that Morehouse can't have that, but, you know, there's you there's only so many resources a place can have, you know, when especially if it hasn't been supported over a long period of time. how do you how do you define equity? What is your definition of equity, and why is equity so important as opposed to just to create a distinction? Equality. People have always put those against each other, rightly or wrongly. Equality of opportunity, equity of outcome. Sure. So I think let's think about this in two ways. I think it's first important to think about it as it relates to people, and secondly, as it relates to policy. Sure. So when it comes to people. When I think of equality, I think of sameness. Uh-huh. And, and there are ways in which the racial groups are the same, genetically, uh-huh. behaviorally, but there are ways in which they're different, culturally and ethnics, and you know, sort of ethnic groups. And so uh-huh. for us to for us to not recognize differences in ethnicities and, and in the cultures flowing from those ethnicities, sort of erases those ethnicities, essentially Mm -hmm. says everyone should try to become one. Um, Everyone should try to act white or look white, Uh, which, of course, is not in which is which should not be our goal. 
Uh-huh. And so I think it's important for us to think about that equality of genetic makeup, that equality of behavior, no matter the cultural or ethnic group, we pretty much love or we hate, we work hard. These are human characteristics while simultaneously thinking about the equity uh, of difference, which means these two cultures are different, but they're on the same level. So we're not going to assess one as superior to another. And and as it relates to policy, when you have, when you're in a society where there's racial inequity. So you take, for instance, I mentioned earlier about, well, let's take it off race because people are, it's easier for people to understand. Let's have an example of what would be an example of an inequity. So an inequity, for instance, is the distinction in wealth between the top 1% uh, in this country versus the bottom 90th percent. and how this very small group of people have an incredible amount of money relative to the bottom 90th. And so in a, a, a policy of equality would be to first say there's that inequity. In order to solve that inequity, we're going to provide the low-income people and billionaires with the same amount. And and we're going to say, well, we're giving them the same amount. We're, we're, this is this is equality, and so therefore we're solving the problem. What equity would do is different. It's who has the greatest needs. We're going to provide those with the greatest needs with the most resources. And and an example of an equitable policy that no one seemed to have a problem with recently was when the United States government realized, not realized, it was obvious that elderly people were the most vulnerable to COVID-19, were dying at the highest rates. So the United States government did not decide to give everyone vaccine first. (laughs) That would have been a policy of equality. We're giving everyone the, the, the vaccine first. No, they were like, no, elderly people are dying at the highest rates. So they should receive vaccine first. They have the greatest need. That's an example of equity. That's an example of equity. An example of equality in terms of policy uh-huh. would have been giving everyone, every age group, uh-huh. the vaccine at the same time. Regardless of need and all that. So exactly. equity in some ways focuses on need or puts yes. has different criteria for how the government should act or how structure should exist. Is that a way to put it? And it's not just government. I mean, how should we even operate? Like I'm going to, when I'm thinking about assisting, I'm going to think about need and difference. Uh And I'm going to recognize that there's different needs. And so even as a teacher, I'm going to recognize there are different learning styles in my classroom. So I'm not going to give, I'm not going to teach the same way to every student. That's more equality. Uh, I'm going to sort of, provide an equitable sort of teaching experience, which is tailoring it to different students. But I should hold every student to the same high standards. That's equality. (laughs) So so when it comes to learning styles, I'm going to be equitable. When it comes to high standards, I'm going to practice equality. In other words, I'm going to make sure I have every student is going to have the same high standards. What was your first awakening to anti-racism as an individual? Like, when did this concept 
really have meaning for you as opposed to when you first heard about it? When did it first mean something to you? I think when I was writing or really researching for Stamp from the beginning, I started writing a history of specifically anti-Black racist ideas. And, And the more I wrote that and researched for it, the more I was like, this is an incomplete story. Because I saw over the course of history, there were ideas that were challenging those racist ideas or a different way of thinking. And, and ultimately, I, I ended up, uh, you know, deciding to call those ideas anti-racist ideas, and which was indeed a term that had been used. Uh, but, I, but I really wanted to elevate that term um, and, and show that it's really the opposite of racist isn't not racist, it's anti-racist. And I want to show that tradition and really that debate over time. Uh, you mentioned your parents a lot in your book. How influential were they in helping you to even be in this area? To I mean, you're basically, this is how you make your living now, you know, in talking about these things and teaching about it. Were they a big influence for that? I think so. I mean, I mean uh-huh. they, they came of age in the early 1970s in, in the black power movement, mm-hmm. they specifically were, were Christians within sort of black theology, uh, that those radical ideas that God and Jesus were black. Right. I radical. remember those days. I was around then. <laughs> yes. And, you know, these apparently extreme ideas that maybe the church should serve as a, as a place in a space of liberation for the people um, to liberate the people from oppression. Uh, and so they were, and, and obviously for black people, that, that oppression was, was racism. And, and so, you know, that's, they came of age intellectually, you know, during that period. And so certainly when, when they were raising me, they, they certainly, uh, you know, passed those ideas on. Ibram, do you have a point of view about religion and its role in racism? I guess, first of all, it'd be Christianity, because that was the, the major force mm-hmm. that was both around blacks in this country and and I'll say given to blacks, you know, <laughs> in this country in a way. Sorry, I mean it kind of was. Right? I mean it's historically accurate. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Do you have any thoughts on that and its role? So I mean, you know, my thoughts are stem from 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 really the history as you just described. And 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 what I find is that Christianity has both been used to sort of justify uh, inequality, uh, inequity, uh, and, 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 and structures of racism. And it's been used as a well to challenge those structures. And so we, I was just talking about liberation theology, which is, you know, emerged as early, you know, as the 1500s to, to challenge some of the early the early emergence of racism, you know, in the Spanish and Portuguese empire. And, 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 you know, with people like Bartolomas de las Casas and, you know, and others. And, and, and so really it's, it's been both, but at the same time, we can't ignore the fact that Christianity, or I should say Christian ideas were absolutely essential to the, to the justification of of colonialism, of slave trading, and of slavery. Yeah, it was 
kind of both the cage and the key, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> simultaneously. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, and, that's a great way to put it. <laughs> yeah. I just thought of it being the writer. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it seems to be a cage and a key at the same time, um, which is it's endlessly fascinating to me that role that religion and many, you know, of our celebrated black leaders have been either Christian or religious in some way. And then you have uh, Islam, you know, and its emergence in the black community uh, with Malcolm X and the nation of Islam, I guess, being the biggest example of its influence during a certain period of time. Do you see that as an anti-racist movement, like that nation of Islam movement, or was it so you could also see it as a non-racist entity that just wanted to exist, you know, independently of a white power structure. How, how do you view what was happening in the black community then, if you have an opinion on it? First and foremost, because, because Americans, or I should say African-Americans, slave trading and the type of slave trading that sort of forcibly brought enslaved people to the United States was, was largely conducted by, by Christian nations, the transatlantic slave trade was, was such. We're not as familiar, meaning African-Americans, we're not as familiar with the trans-Saharan slave trade, which was uh-huh. largely conducted by, by Muslim slave traders, uh-huh. uh, or even the slave trade off the coast of East Africa. Uh-huh. Um, and so I, I think that then allows Muslim thinkers to claim that uh, sort of anti-Blackness was fundamentally a Christian phenomenon. <laughs> I'm like, um, I'm making a face. People can't see me right now. I'm like, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Which then allows a, you know, a Muslim minister to say, hey, you know, you are black, so you should be, you, how could you be Christian? Uh-huh. And instead you should, you know, be Muslim. And indeed, Malcolm X, uh, one of the ways in which he was able to quote fish, basically, you know, get new people to join the mm-hmm. nation. Absolutely. Was by talking about slavery. Like, right. you know, you talk about slavery, that's, that's going to get black right. folks. <laughs> <laughs> Especially then, right? Let's talk about an issue that's been out there for a while because I'm completely confused on this, and it's critical race theory, CRT. Everybody's been talking about it. It's the you know the soup de jour of the racist talk, the racial talk <laughs> out there. I always find these kind of things distracting from what's really going on for the most part. But can you help us? Uh, I promised uh, people in my pod I would have somebody smart on to help us understand some of these things. Can can you help us understand what is critical race theory, first of all? Let, let, let's start with that so we can just have a conversation about it. And I'll, I'll do a follow-up question after. But what is sure. your opinion? Like, what actually is critical race theory? So, I mean, I'll use the definition that Kimberly Crenshaw, who's one of the founders of critical race theory, recently used, and, and, and that's a, a way of looking at the law's role uh-huh. in platforming, facilitating, producing, and even insulating racial inequality in this country. So critical race theory primarily has to do with the law and its involvement in a racial hierarchy and, and maintaining that structure or whatever it is, right? Precisely. And it largely, it makes sense because it Critical race theory largely emerged among legal scholars and lawyers, and it's largely taught, you know, in law schools. So has critical race theory, the talking about it now, has critical race theory expanded to cover other things or or people expanded what the definition of critical race theory actually is? So I, I do think that, you know, critical race theory 
has, because when you're taught, the law is so expansive. Uh-huh. And, and so I think that even through looking at it at the prison of the law, you can look at almost every aspect of society. And, and so I think it's allowed critical race theorists to, to really expand and, and look at many different uh, the ways in which structures sort of maintain themselves, even to our time. So, like, what are some of the structures? Here's some of the stuff I've been trying to figure out myself, too. And I think you've talked about a little bit in your book. Like, and some people joke about it, too, where they say, everything's racist now? Ice cream is racist? So, like, what are the structures that we can say, I don't know if saying it's racist is necessarily the right term, but maybe presents a, is an example of... Uh, being formed by racial structure or has racial issues to deal with it. Can you name some of those structures to help us understand what we're talking about here? Sure. So let me Mm -hmm. give a a relevant recent example. Mm -hmm. Um, Last summer, uh, it was widely known that Black people were dying at the highest rates from COVID-19. And and so, you know, scholars and researchers started to figure... Higher than the elderly? Not higher than the elderly, okay. Uh, but black elderly people were dying at higher rates than white elderly people. <laughs> okay, um, and and so which, by the way, when we then started talking about, well, maybe black people should get vaccine, be close to the front of the line. Suddenly, people had a problem with that, <laughs> even though we knew all along black people were dying at the highest rates. But anyway, um, so you know, black people have died at the highest rates from COVID-19. So then the question became, okay, what were the structures or more specifically, what were the policies and practices and conditions that led to that disproportionate sort of black death? And and what we we found, what researchers found was a series of things. Uh, First, uh, black people were less likely to have health insurance, uh, let's say, than, than, than white Americans, than than, than Asian Americans and other Americans. And, and so as a result, uh, Black people were less likely to present to the hospital with early stages of COVID. They were more likely, according to a study in North, Northern California, to present with advanced stages of COVID. So just like with any disease, you present with advanced stages, you're going to be less likely <laughs> to live. Uh, and they were less likely, Black people, to live in neighborhoods with a trauma one center. And so black people were more likely to live in what's called trauma deserts, which you don't have a trauma one center there, which is a type of hospital that can provide high quality uh, care to people who are, you know, whose deaths are being threatened. So again, they were more likely to present with advanced stages of COVID. They were more likely to present at hospitals that weren't the best in the country for saving lives. So you put those two things together, they're more likely to die. And so why would, and then you combine that with the fact that Black people were also more likely than others to to not be able to work from home. So Black and Latinx Americans were, were the most likely to not be able to work from home. They were more likely to be essential workers. So then that made them more likely to get infected. <laughs> um, and, and then you combine that with the fact that Black people, even middle-income Black people, were more likely than others to live in polluted neighborhoods with higher levels of air and water pollution. And, and, and that then led to Black people being more likely to have pre-existing conditions. <laughs> so you, again, present, you're more likely to get infected because you're 
Black people are more likely to be essential workers. Then they're more likely to present with advanced stages uh, because they don't have health insurance. Then they present at hospitals uh, that aren't the best for saving lives. And then they're more likely to have pre-existing conditions, which then make them more vulnerable to death. You put all those factors together, it, it makes sense why Black people died at the highest rates. Now, then we can start thinking about, okay, what are the reasons why Black people live in trauma deserts, are more likely to live in polluted neighborhoods, are less able to work from home, are more likely to live in these low, work in these low-income uh, you know, jobs. Now we're talking about a history of policies and practices that we can identify. What is the what is the best approach to help to dismantle these things? Because there's so many things, and I would assume that anti-racism is an attempt at dismantling. Is that yes. fair? Yeah. Okay. As opposed to and constructing. So in constructing. Okay, dismantling and constructing. That's good. I think that's really good. So how so? Part of the dismantling is certainly the ideas that people have, but what is the part of the dismantling that's the physical dismantling? Is what is there a component to that, and how does that operate? So, I mean, let's talk about. I mean, the COVID nineteen death disparities is is just the latest racial health disparity. One of the causes of those disparities, as I mentioned, is the, you know, Black people being less likely to be insured. We can eliminate that disparity with universal health care. <laughs> so that's, that, that can be eliminated with a policy that's on the table of the American people. Uh, and, you know, another problem, again, I mentioned is the lack of uh, trauma one centers. So we could see, OK, what are the communities that don't have these trauma one centers? And how do we make existing hospitals into trauma one centers so that everyone, whether you're urban and black or white and rural, can be very close to a trauma one center? Then we also know that, you know, there are doctors who imagine that uh, black people don't experience as much pain as white people. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Or they, they're not as responsive to a Black woman who is pregnant when she says she's having a problem, we can weed those people out or train them differently in medical school. And so we can put structures in place to train people to ensure they're being anti-racist if they're going to have the power and the ability to save you know, lives or even kill people. Yeah, the unconscious beasting of Blacks in America. Okay, let's talk about the education system since talking about teaching. How should anti-racism, and I don't know if you have an opinion on this, be presented in lower schools? Because that's where a lot of fights are right now with uh, school boards who are, they're saying critical race theory. But to me, I think a lot of what they're talking about, and I don't call it critical race theory, by the way. I think a lot of it's critical race facts. You know, like that's the thing that critical race facts, Ibram, is what upsets white people, not critical race theory. If something's just a theory, who cares? But a critical race fact, now we got something we have to deal with, you know? No, so to me, true. no, it's the critical race facts that people have an issue with, you know? Uh, but how should something like anti-racism, if you have an opinion on this, be presented, let's say, in lower school, lower school, middle school? Like, how should that manifest itself? Elementary school children and middle school children see racial inequity. Like they, they see that 
most of the homeless people in their community may be a particular racial group. They, they see that. And, and so they, like adults, well, maybe not like adults, because we think we figured everything out. Uh, they're trying to sort of figure out why is that the case? And if we're not actively teaching them about racism, then what are they going to assume? They're going to th- think that Black people are more likely to be homeless because there's something wrong with Black people. And so, I, and we also, especially for the younger children, have to actively teach them to, to not assign characteristics to skin color. We have to encourage them to see the differences, you know, in their community and appreciate those differences and level those differences and, 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 and celebrate those differences as opposed to trying to get them to, to as, as opposed to adults imagining that they're colorblind. We're not even colorblind. You know, they're right. not, they can tell the difference between orange and green. Right. <laughs> right. We don't want to be colorblind. What are you going to do at a stoplight? I think was the example. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Um, in fact, some of these culturally ingrained things are so pernicious. As you say, you know, it affects everybody, not just white people. You know, there was the famous doll test that was done, I think, in the 40s and the 50s, where even black kids were like, which doll is the bad doll? And they point to the black doll. It was yeah. a doll, the bad doll. I mean, that's crazy. You know, when you think about that. And I mean, first of all, I'm like, what motherfucker came up with this test? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, how, how did they come? I want to know those answers. You know, who came up with that then? You know, it's crazy. Uh, one thing I wanted to get your opinion on, I haven't heard this talked about much, but, you know, I think you're the person to talk about it too. Let's talk about Black excellence, okay? Because Black failure is always talked about when we talk about race relations, you know, and to me, some of that is a, I feel can be a, I don't know, a zero losing type of thing sometimes, because when it makes, for me, when white people focus on black solutions, blacks are always in a bad situation or they're underdogs or they're, they're not able to do something or they need that white help in order to succeed or that. But there's a lot of black excellence that, happens in the world. And that, to me, sometimes can erase in people's mind racism, (laughs) you know, and that, you know. And I thought Obama's presidency, for many people, they thought racism was over. And and ironically, you're writing, you know, (laughs) some of your stuff during that period, you know. And I think a lot of people were kind of asleep during the Obama years about some of these issues, and whereas when Trump was elected, I think it clarified to a lot of people <laughs> that these issues are still around. Now, having said that, during Obama, we had Ferguson. We had, you know, a lot of the situations. I was covering it on my show at the time. Do you have an opinion about this period? Because I know you were writing a lot during and observing both the past and the present. Well, I'm happy, you know, Larry, you asked me about Black excellence mm-hmm. because historically, Black people have thought that Black excellence would persuade away white racist ideas about Black people. Correct. Jackie Robinson, Jellos, you know, whatever. Sometimes it's in sports, sometimes whatever it is, whatever that example was supposed to get rid of it. And, And we also, by contrast, thought that black failure would reinforce yes. <laughs> racist ideas. Exactly. Um, 
And so that's why we would, you know, within the community would tell people, no, you have to be great. You don't want to, quote, make the race look bad. And but there were also constructive ideas behind that too. get your education so you can get a good job and get out of here. So it was both constructive and relationship. You know, definitely. What I didn't know until I started researching for Stamp from the beginning is. As early as I mean, there was a, you know, Phyllis Wheatley was uh, doing incredible poetry in in the United States. And there was this this um, this black writer, I I believe um, his his name is forgetting me, who was writing at the same time in, in England and someone ended up writing a biography of him. And the subtitle of that biography, which I think was published around 1800, was called The Extraordinary Negro. And the reason why I mention that is because what that came to mean for Black people who were excelling was that you are not like those ordinary, inferior Black people. So what happened was, and what still happens, is, is, is Black excellence does not, for some people, persuade away white racist ideas. They just view that person as exceptional. <laughs> you're, 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 you're not the rule of this Black failure. Uh, and, and I think that's been very difficult for even, I think, Black people to, to, to just recognize. Because like even when we're excellent, it doesn't mean for some people, it doesn't show them that Black people are just as equal as white people. Uh, the flip side of it, and tell me what you think about that too, is in the evidence of a lot of Black excellence, some people can insist that Blacks are not making progress, and I disagree with that. Yeah, and I, I think what we what what's actually the case. So, in in you know, as you know, there's been a almost a generational argument with, within the Black community, in which some have have said we're we're making progress, and others have argued we're not. And and typically, when two sides of an argument are extremely strong and heated, it's likely because both sides are correct. And I actually think both sides are correct. I think you can you can make the case that there has been progress in certain ways and there hasn't been in other ways. And I think when you track the history of Black America, particularly over the last 60 years, you know, we can see that. Yeah. To me, it's like uh, getting the minds out of a minefield, but realizing yeah those minds were covering some other shit that was going on. So even though you've gotten rid of the minds, you've unearthed, you know, the thing that it was covering, that rotting soil or whatever it is. So that that's, it just presents a different problem, but it does get rid of the other problem, you know? I mean, can you imagine that? Like going through a minefield and getting up uh, all the mines and then you're like, uh, oh my God, I'm standing on a massive bomb. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> Why did I not leave these mines here? <laughs> Whose idea is it to get rid of these mines? Yeah. Uh, what about leadership? Do blacks have always been, I'm going to use a term that, you know, I'm just going to make up right now, but I think we've always been convinced that we need leaders in order to have progress. You know, we've always looked to individuals to kind of do the way and white people have kind of used those individuals, you know, both for and against and attack. And when I say white people, I mean the white power structures. I don't mean to say just white people, you know, uh, where where's leadership right now? Is that something that you think we need for where we're moving in society with this type of thing, or should we kind of shed that notion that that type of thing is needed for for any kind of progress? Let's say. 
So I think when I think of leaders, I think of expertise. And so in other words, I, I think if, if we're talking about, you know, how do we roll back levels of, you know, of incarceration, there are people who are, who, who are working in this specific field, who have formed organizations to do it, who are, who are, who are researching it. And we should look to them. They should I agree. lead us. Absolutely. In terms of how we should do it. There are other people who have different areas of expertise or even different skills. You know, I, I think that even the movement for, for civil rights, you know, you, you take, you know, the Montgomery bus boycott as an example. There were people who were strategists in terms of the actual boycott itself, whether it was how to devise carpools to make sure people could get to work. There were other people who inspired the people to go on, uh, you know, through singing or, you know, through um, comedy or through, uh, you know, sermons. There were other people uh, who, uh, there were different aspects. And so I think if, 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 if we can all recognize that we, we have different areas of expertise, we have different ways of contributing and, and just do what we do best, you know, I think we'll, we'll see that there are many different leaders in different types of ways. Well, I think certainly your voice has been one of those that has, at the least, you know, has kind of helped people to have conversations about these things, you know, and look at it in different ways, which I think is great. Has any of the work you've done in the past 10 years or so affected you on a personal level? I think there's been two aspects of it. I, I think one you know, trying to remain grounded, you know, despite, you know, everything that's happened and everything I've been able to do over the last year. Um, and I think that's been a, a focus and, and to really uh, stay true to who I am. And then secondly, I think because of the sort of influence of the work, there's been a, just a lot of very brutal attacks, you know, on, on, on me and my work. And so just you know, having to learn how to sort of deal with that, which I feel like I have, um, or at least I've tried to, you know, and I think those have been the, the two biggest things coming to learn how to deal with the influence and then how to even deal with, you know, all of the, the haters as we would call them. <laughs> yes. Many times people think just the discussion of these things is an act of insurrection against civilization or whatever, you know, which is crazy. Um, I went through a lot of that. I got death threats when I was doing my show, all kinds of stuff. It was crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I've had to deal with that. <laughs> yeah. Just to hang in there, man. It's, you know, it does. I, and I don't require agreement to be engaged. Uh, I don't know anybody I thousand percent agree with, you know, but I think, uh, opening up these discussions to look at something in a different way, because obviously the ways we've been looking at things haven't always worked, you know, and in order to get people to, you know, inhabit a different space, which is really what we're requiring our civilization to want to do, inhabit a different space when it comes to these things that have troubled us, you know, and, and be cool with that space, even though it may feel uncomfortable, you know, is what we're going to kind of have to do. Are you hopeful about, where just the, we'll take America since we live here for the, where this is going. Do you have a lot of hope in maybe the young people who might be carrying this mantle or do you think 
well, this could just be a fad, you know, <laughs> it could be flavor of the week right now. <laughs> I do have hope from a philosophical standpoint. I believe mm-hmm. you have to believe change is possible in order to bring it about. Or at least I believe that I have to believe that I can't be cynical about something that and then go and try to fight for it. Um, but I'm also hopeful just because there are so many people today who, who are, who are extremely talented, who are extremely thoughtful and who are extremely committed to, you know, to creating a different type of world. And, and I think being able to, to work with them, um, you know, in many different fields and sectors and industries, I think gives me hope because you, you know, you're not alone. There's so many people who are trying to, to do this type of work, um, to, to, to relieve harm and, 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 and to create, you know, really what, what modern humanity has never known. And so why, why can't we, we can still create this. Yeah, that's great. And it does open up other conversations, which are important too. I really enjoyed your pod on ableism, which was, you know, something I had never really thought of that much. And I, I thought it was fantastic, you know, to, be able to have that discussion where I feel like things don't have to be the same, but they can, you know, that thin diagram, they can cross over and, and have some intersections where the intersection can be powerful, even if the, the space isn't necessarily the same space, right? Definitely. Definitely. Any wish list for future guests on your pod? Who'd you like to have? Besides me, I mean, who'd you like? <laughs> well, besides Larry Wilmore, um, we're pretty much finalizing the this season but i think for a potential next season i'm not even sure because i i think i like this season had a particular sort of theme and flow and i think we're 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 going to try to f- potentially figure out a, a new sort of theme and flow and then i think that will allow us to determine who would be the best per- people to come on and talk to and each season you'd kind of do that type of thing my pitch would be I think this work is powerful to talk to young people and just people who aren't famous or in that. And I love those type of interviews, you know, where you're talking to people who are on the front lines of some of the things that are happening and that kind of stuff might be kind of cool. That's a great idea. Yeah. Yeah. But I wish you the best of luck guys. If you want to have some, here's some good conversations where people aren't yelling and shouting at each other. (laughs) (laughs) It's the, it's the cool soothing voice of even makes candy, everybody. Uh, His uh, new pod by Pushkin, which is great. Malcolm Gladwell and all those people. Pushkin. Pushkin is it an industry. Pushkin Industries. What? It sounds like something that's way more important than it actually is. <laughs> it's like, motherfucker, that's just a podcast. Stop trying to make it sound like it's this exotic thing. <laughs> by the Pushkin people, be anti-racist. Uh, they can get it wherever podcasts are playing, I would suppose. Thank you so much, Larry, for having me on the show. I appreciate it. And once again, congrats. And it's so nice getting to talk to you. I appreciate you being here.